0: What would be a major goal of the Christian life? What, what would you hope to accomplish in your Christian life? What if, what if I told you that one of the major goals of the Christian life, a focus of the Christian life even, is to serve and to suffer like the Lord Jesus? Think, think for a moment about the Lord Jesus. What was the moment at which He proclaimed, It is finished. What was the moment at which he proclaimed all his work was done? Was it not the the climax of his service and suffering for God's people? And if, if, if that was an end and goal of his life, and we call ourselves followers of the Lord Jesus, walking in his steps, how can not that also be one of our goals? To follow in his way, to serve and to suffer like him. My, my prayer this morning is that we would, we would not only remember that that is the path and pattern that our Lord Jesus walked, but it's also the path and pattern that we too are called to walk. And we should also remember that His death was not the last word, was it? After His suffering came glory. And we are only able to suffer to follow in His footsteps if we remember the whole of His work, His suffering and His glory. So I pray that we would be strengthened by this study of God's Word and consider the the goal of Christ's life as even a goal for our own lives. May we serve and suffer for our Savior because He served and suffered for us and for our salvation. Now, it's been a while since we've opened up 1 Peter together, so let's just remember what this letter is about. Peter is writing to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, who lived uh, in today what we know as modern Turkey. Peter opened his letter by encouraging believers to rejoice in the internal internal inheritance that they have in Christ. that's waiting for them. He exhorted these elect exiles, as he called them, to fix their hope on glory while they sojourn here on earth. At the close of chapter 3, Peter summed up his teaching by effectively saying, Lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in your suffering because he was lifted up for you. He was lifted up for your sins. He was lifted up to rescue you so that you might be saved. In other words, Peter has been saying, If you suffer, then suffer like Jesus. This is really the, the whole point of his letter. If you suffer, suffer like Jesus. Suffer for the things that Jesus suffered for. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, the the first portion of 1 Peter chapter 4, the author gave clear two exhortations. He he encouraged his readers to think like Christ while he was in the world and to live like it was the end of the world. That's what Peter has just said before we come to our passage. These two themes emerge in our text too. In fact, the, the whole sum of our passage can be summarized in these words, suffer like the Savior. Those four words, I think, summarize the whole of the passage we're looking at together. Suffer like the Savior. Let me just read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Follow along there in your copies of God's Word as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's Word entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We're going to unpack this text under four headings. Smile at suffering. Suffer for the Savior. Suffer as one scarcely saved. And suffer like the Savior. And I'll repeat those headings as we move into each new section. Let's begin with our First point, smile at suffering. Read again, verses 12 and 13. Do you see them there? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do you see the, the tenderness with which Peter begins this section as he begins to focus in on some, some very hard things? He he says to his readers, Beloved, dear, dear ones, those whom I love, those whom God loves, beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Why should we not be surprised at suffering? Why should they not be surprised at suffering? Well, the answer is because Jesus told his disciples that we would face difficulty in this world. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. A little later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 23, verse 34, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. You see, Jesus is saying this is going to happen to God's people. In, in Luke's gospel, toward the end, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verses 16 and 17, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then, of course, in John's gospel, Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus, he's saying that suffering is not only normal, but it's also necessary. And Jesus, he's not the only one who said that. The apostles said it too. So in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas were told this about their ministry. Listen to what they go about telling people. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And John... Paul wasn't the only one. The apostle John, in 1 John 3, verse 13, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We should not be surprised. Our Lord Jesus has told us that the people of God will suffer. His disciples, the apostles, have told us that God's people will suffer. But this is also the experience of saints of old as well. God's people have long suffered. So the writer to the Hebrews, he tells us about what the saints of old endured. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38, he writes, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth suffering should not surprise us which makes me wonder should the absence of suffering perhaps surprise us or frighten us beloved Peter says don't be surprised and do you notice how he characterized the trial what's the word he uses there it's, it's fiery do not be surprised at the fiery trial it, it will come upon God's people it's not a matter of if but when right when it comes to you when it comes upon you to test you no nope, no nope, Peter's honesty right this is normal this is fiery this is difficult it will happen it's a test Peter's just Let's us know right up front. And what he's saying here is actually what he said earlier. Just flip over a couple of pages back to chapter 1. You'll see in verses 6 and 7, Peter basically says this same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the purpose of testing through trial, it's to strengthen our trust. It's, it's to draw us deeper into the Lord Jesus Christ, into trusting God the Father. It's for the purpose of our faith being purified. See, trials, they don't downgrade our trust. They bring it to a higher quality. That's God's purpose. We don't know for certain what these fiery trials were in specific, but given Jesus' teaching, given the apostles' teaching, given Peter's teaching in this letter, it seems it was for faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one way in which believers in the first century expressed faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ was by refusing to pay tribute or to worship Caesar. Christians decided, no, we will not go to the temple, we will not pay tribute to Caesar, we will not worship him, because Jesus is Lord, and to Jesus alone belongs our worship. And many suffered. They were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, they were persecuted. Nero even literally set some believers on fire. Do not be surprised. But then Peter, he, he doesn't just say, do not be surprised. He goes further, doesn't he? H- have a different attitude, actually. Rejoice. Re- re- rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice? Really? Suffering, it, it's not a good in and of itself. It is a, a big, It's a good because of how God uses it for our good, for His glory and to draw us nearer to him to make us more like Jesus and to draw us deeper into the Lord Jesus and what does it mean to share in Christ's sufferings it simply means that we're stepping into the path and and pattern that our Savior has already walked before us that he's walked for us and for our salvation we're not sharing in Christ's sufferings in the the sense that we are completing something that he failed to complete no his, his work was complete we're We're sharing in Christ's sufferings, that we're walking in the path and pattern that he has walked because we're following and living in the ways that he lived. We're actually commending Christ as we live for Christ. We're showing the world that what Christ did for us is worth doing for him because in his death he paid for all of our sin. Peter says rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And he's speaking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ there in that phrase. So we share in Christ's sufferings now. We can do that with a view because we believe in Christ's resurrection, that his death was not the end, but that he was raised, and we believe in his return. Sharing in Christ's sufferings now shows the world that we don't believe death is the end, and that we don't believe that temporal suffering is the worst thing that we could possibly endure. We don't even think that death is the worst. It was only after Christ's suffering that He was glorified. As many have said, the way up is down. The way to glory is through suffering. But Peter says rejoice. And this isn't our natural response, is it? Our natural response is to to hide and to take shelter and to run away. But Christians, Peter says, they don't run away. They... They rejoice. And we know this. We know that they rejoice because they see it as a privilege of being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, right? This was the apostles' example in Acts chapter 5. They were arrested and then released. And then Luke says this in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles, they rejoiced that they were privileged to be counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they turn around and do after they suffered? They went right back out and got back to work doing the thing that brought that pain, that brought that suffering. This is what I mean by... By smile, right? We smile at suffering. We count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Not, Not because we love suffering, but because it's a privilege to show something of the sufferings of our Savior. Let's be challenged by the apostles. Not only did the apostles rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were committed to seeing Christ continue to be exalted in word and indeed you see that phrase there when his glory is revealed i think part of the implication of what peter may be saying to us is that if we do not share in christ's sufferings now we will not share in his glory later we will only rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed which is to say when he returns if we share in the fellowship of his sufferings now Smile at suffering because you're being counted as a son, Hebrews 12, and if a son, then an heir, Galatians 4. Smile at suffering because you're being counted worthy of Christ, as the apostles were in Acts 5. Smile at suffering because you know that it is but a brief and momentary trial. Smile at suffering because it prepares you for heaven. Smile at suffering because you know the end. You will receive glory. Or God's people, where for God's people there will be no more difficulty, disease, decay, or death. In, in meditating on this text, a lingering question for me, I don't know what it may be for you, but for me, a lingering question has been this. Am I sharing in Christ's sufferings because I'm living a distinctive and discernible Christian life? A life that the world would hate and oppose and oppress because it points to Christ. I mean, I think this is what Peter is getting at there in verses 14 to 16. When we suffer, it should be for the Savior and not for sin, not for silliness or foolishness. So this is the second thing that Peter tells us from this text. Suffer for the Savior. Take a look at verses 14 to 16 again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See there, if you suffer, if you're insulted, it needs to be for a name. And that name is not your name. It's Christ's name. It's not just the... If we suffer, we're blessed. But if we suffer for Christ, that we're insulted for His name. And let's be clear about the insult here. This is not just a kind of a barrage of words, right? This is a a forceful rejection, a reviling of a believer. Being insulted for Peter would have meant being openly mocked, ridiculed, and reproached. All of those things that the Lord Jesus endured when He was on the cross, right? Right? Being insulted here carries with it connotations of shame, being a social outcast. And in in this culture, in the first century, honor and shame were very highly regarded values, right? You did everything you could to protect your family's honor, to protect the name of your family. You didn't want any shame to be brought upon them. You know, when my my parents lived in Turkey and served as, as missionaries there, Uh, This they experience very often. Someone would lie in order to protect the name of their family. To preserve their honor. This is something of the the kind of culture there. You do everything possible to avoid being shamed. But Peter says, there's joy in this for you. If you're shamed for Christ. Remember the apostles, they suffered dishonor for his name. See, identifying with Christ, loving and living for Christ should set us off, mark us out, and discernibly distinguish us from the world. And given the world's natural hatred of Christ, they would then express that through opposition and insults toward God's people. So are we different? Is our allegiance to Christ discernible? Seen? You know, uh, my, my son and I were going over to the neighbor's house yesterday... And uh, we walked up into his yard and he was there. And his dog started barking at us. Right? We're strangers. We don't belong there. We're on his turf. So he wants us to back off. I think Peter's saying something like that, right? Does Does the world bark at you for being a believer? You're on their turf. You don't belong here. This is not the kind of ethic that's welcome in this world. But this is the Lord Jesus' world, and so we have to live His ethic out in this world. Peter calls us to live as strangers and aliens in this world. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. But the real question is, are we strange to this world? What are those things that visibly and discernibly distinguish us from the world? One is that we gather to assemble, to worship the risen Lord Jesus. Because God's Word commands it and commends it. And if we're insulted because we gather here for the name of Christ, then we're blessed. And that should not generate any kind of spiritual pride within us. But a soberness that our our friends and neighbors aren't gathering with us. Uh, One of the things I was convicted by over these last two months was I drove by the golf course one Saturday and saw people playing golf and my heart was grieved that you could putt but you couldn't go here preaching. And my dear wife said to me, you should feel that way every Sunday that you drive by somebody who's not gathering with God's people. You should be concerned for their souls. Are we concerned, so concerned that we're willing to cross that pain line, perhaps to receive kind of a a bark? Are we leaning into being faithful and proclaiming Christ and inviting others to come to Him? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. There's blessing for cursing. There's blessing of God for the world's cursing. And those who suffer for the name of Christ are blessed. What was, what was it our Lord Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount? He said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. That's what Jesus told us. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Peter, he's just echoing the teaching of the Lord Jesus here. Christians are blessed when they suffer for the name of Christ, when they prove that they are little Christs. That name, first given to Christians, was one of derision. But believers have embraced it. Yes, we actually want to be like the Lord Jesus. Christians are joyful in suffering for the name of Jesus because this reveals they're united to the Lord Jesus Christ and they possess, you see, they're the spirit of glory. Persecution is a sign that you're precious to Christ, that you are blessed by Christ and belong to Christ. And we have no doubt that our Lord will be with us by His Holy Spirit in our suffering, and that too will be a blessing You know, part of the imagery that Peter is drawing on here is likely from the book of Isaiah. There are a number of scattered references where the Spirit is said to rest upon the Messiah. And what Peter is saying here to a degree is that if you walk in the way of the Messiah and bear reproach for the Messiah, then the same Spirit of glory and of God that rested upon the Messiah also rests upon you. And that blessing will strengthen you to bear all the world's cursing. But... Peter says. Do you see the butt there in the text? Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Not that. Or a thief. Not that. Or an evildoer. Not that. Or as a meddler. Or all that. <laughs> we've all meddled. Now, we've probably also likely murdered in our hearts. And been thieves in our minds and have done evil. But what Peter is saying is, look, in your context... Don't suffer because you deserve it, because you've done wrong, because you've done something unrighteous. If you're going to suffer, it needs to be for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you're being faithful to Him and for what He commands you. This is a, a backhanded way of saying, don't suffer because you deserve it. Don't suffer for sin. It's acceptable to suffer for Christ. It is unacceptable to suffer for sin and wickedness. So be wise and godly holy and righteous and good Be, be, be gracious you don't needle unbelievers to incite suffering it should actually come naturally because you're just doing the things the lord jesus commands you to do suffer for those things but don't suffer for lawlessness for sin and for wickedness yet and here's verse 16 it's really repeating the teaching of verse 14 it's parallel if you suffer and if you're a christian It seems that you must suffer at some point in time, to some degree, for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you must also glorify God in your suffering. Don't be ashamed of suffering for Christ. Rather, rejoice and seek to make your suffering redound to God's glory. Well, how can you do that? Peter's going to tell us a little more in verse 19. But it's by, in the midst of your suffering, act how the Lord Jesus acted. Our sufferings for Christ ought to point to His sufferings and how He conducted Himself in His sufferings in His life and in His death for us. And this brings glory to God on earth even as Christ is glorified in heaven. And I think we must ever keep in view what the end of verse 13 says, that we suffer with joy now because we will rejoice when Christ's glory is revealed and the fullness of our salvation is complete Suffering now glorifies God as it shows the world the goal of our lives is not here, but heaven. And why does Peter, why does Peter need to provide this teaching to Christian exiles? Why do we need this word from our Lord and from our God? Well, I think it's because of what Peter says there in verses 17 and 18. We need to suffer as those scarcely say. That's our third point. Suffer. As one scarcely saved. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. Read those verses there. For it is time for judgments to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter tells us it's time. The time has come. For judgments to fall, and to fall upon first the house of God. And we think, now now wait a minute, Peter. Didn't all of our judgment fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't he bear the punishment for all of our sin? Yes, that's absolutely true. That's what the scriptures teach. Remember what Peter is teaching here is these fiery trials. The context of the the testing of of our faith clearly the judgment in view it harkens back to that refinement of our faith through these fiery trials for us for for those who believe the outcome is that we will be scarcely saved verse 18 but for those who do not obey the gospel of our god they well the implication is clearly they will not be saved and here in verse 18 peter's likely quoting proverbs chapter 11 verse 31 We probably ought to linger over those words, scarcely saved, for a moment. It's true that we're safely saved, graciously saved, gloriously saved, certainly saved. But we are also scarcely saved. The idea here is that walking in the path and pattern of our Savior is only done with great difficulty. Though from a heavenly perspective, our salvation was always secure and never in doubt, we know from our personal experience in living out our faith in the trials and tribulations of this world that the road is narrow, that it's hard and rocky, and that the refinement that we undergo through God's fiery trials sometimes sets us to wonder if we're really going to make it. But Peter's quote of that great proverb also reminds us of a host of other Old Testament texts. We were reminded of Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, uh, Zechariah 13, which we read earlier in the service, and Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. You'll remember from our reading of Zechariah the earlier that we learned that God, the Lord, declared that He would put His people into the fire and refine them and lead them to call upon His name. But now I want to turn your attention, your ears to the prophet Malachi. Listen to what he says in Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. The prophet writes, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. And refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. There's so much comfort, I think, and hope that we should draw. Not only from that Zechariah text, but also from Malachi. And that the same ideas are present in both texts. God sends fire to refine his people. And they remain faithful to Him. They, they draw, he draws them to Himself through these trials. This ought to encourage us. Fire comes and God's people remain faithful. Here we learn that fiery judgment, it purifies the house of God. And that's imagery that Peter himself has used before. He has called God's people a spiritual house over in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Brothers and sisters, I think we can say this, down through the halls of history, from time to time, our God has brought hard, fiery providences upon a corrupted and impure church for the sake of refining and purifying them. This is what we endure and experience in time and in space. And if this is what God's people endure for their eternal good and for God's great glory then what will happen to those who face the final fire of God's unbearable judgment? Right, verse 18. That's the question it's asking. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is that if we are scarcely able to make it to endure and faithfully persevere and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the ungodly and the sinner certainly will not make it and we know what will become of the ungodly and the sinner because the scriptures teach us what will become of the ungodly and the sinner listen to what the apostle Paul writes in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 to 9 Paul writes since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you And to grant relief to you who are also afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians parallels with what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4. Both Paul and Peter declare that the gospel of our God is to be obeyed and that those who do not obey the gospel will not be saved. Sadly, they will suffer, but not temporal suffering, eternal suffering. They will not merely suffer the fires of sanctifying refinement, but the fires of of eternal self-conscious torment. Dear friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear this call to obey the gospel of God. He says to you, you are a sinner. You, like a sheep, have gone astray. And we all have. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chosen to live our own way rather than God's way. We've not obeyed Him. And yet He has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh. And He lived a life of suffering. Suffering reproach and rebuke and reviling. And yet He was sinless in all of it. Unlike any of us have been. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. How many of us? All of us. Right? When somebody has reviled us we have sadly reviled in return. The Lord Jesus, He lived a sinless life and suffered throughout the whole course of His life, but it was climaxed, it culminated in His suffering on the cross where He died bearing the punishment and wrath for the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and trust in Him, believing that He died bearing God's judgment against their sin. But that was not the end of His story. For three days later, he was raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. And now the Lord Jesus says, repent, turn from your sin, and follow me. That's a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. And to obey the gospel of God means to follow after Jesus, believing that He lived for you the life that you've not lived, that He died for you, the death that your sins deserved. And that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sin. So friends, Do not choose eternal suffering. Choose the Lord Jesus Christ who has offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice against your sin. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a a wonderful and merciful Savior who says, come, sinner. I'm going to embrace you in my arms. And all my righteousness covers all Of your filthy rags. Welcome and come into my kingdom and follow me. Oh, friend, obey this gospel call from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how anyone is scarcely saved by trusting and hiding themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, dear Christian, if you are concerned about the fiery trial that you may experience on earth, I want to invite you to remember and give thanks and rejoice in the truth that because of Christ, you have been spared of the final fiery trial of those who do not obey the gospel of our God. Christian, give thanks that you will not endure the punishment that Christ endured or the punishment that those who reject Christ will endure. So Christian, endure their insults. Endure their mockery. Endure their anger and rage and wrath with, com- with pity and compassion and much grace. Maybe pray like the Lord Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Show them in your suffering that you identify with the Christ who would not revile and return Show them in your suffering that you identify with the Savior who opened not his mouth. Show them in your suffering that you identify with the Messiah who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's really the conclusion that Peter comes to and drives at there in verse 19. Suffer like the Savior. This is our last point now. Suffer like the Savior. Read 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, right, there's that word in our text that whenever you come upon therefore, you ask, what's it there for? What's it doing? How's it working and functioning? It's a special word that gives weight to everything that has gone before. Therefore, since or because all of this is true. You should do or live in the following way. So, therefore, since or because you know that trials are coming, you should not be surprised by them. Verse 12. Because you share in Christ's sufferings. Because you will rejoice and be glad when Christ is revealed in all His glory. Verse 13. Because you're insulted for Christ. Verse 14. Because you're blessed by Christ. Verse 14. Because you are graced with the Spirit of glory. Verse 14. Because you suffer for doing what is right, verse 15. Because you are called to glorify God in your suffering, verse 16. Because it is time for God to visit His people with a refining fire, verse 17. Because you will be saved from the fires of eternal judgment on the last day, verse 17. Because God will judge the ungodly and the sinner, verse 18. Because of all of these things, entrust your soul to God and do good. Note carefully those words, according to God's will. Remember, we're to suffer for doing those things that are according to God's will, not for sin. Take heart that you will enter into glory. So entrust your soul to God. And notice how Peter gives us encouragement and inducement to place our lives, our whole selves, our souls in the hands of God. Peter is saying, entrust your soul to your faithful creator. Do you know who entrusted himself to God the Father first? It was the Lord Jesus. If you flip over, Peter says this about the Lord Jesus. If you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly." <clears throat> in other words, when Jesus suffered, he entrusted himself to God the Father, and now, Christian, it's your turn. It's your turn to follow in his way, to suffer as Jesus suffered. And as we suffer, we are to entrust our souls, our whole selves, into the hands of who? Our faithful creator. Now, Peter, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He could have just said, just entrust yourself to the Creator. But he didn't, did he? He said, "To, to who? To our faithful Creator. Do you see how Peter is saying, come, come to Him. Entrust your souls to Him. He's reminding us of our God's great character, His trustworthiness. Our God is not only the one who spoke creation into existence, but He faithfully sustains it. He causes the globe to keep spinning, the sun to keep rising, The rain to keep falling and everything that is needed, everything that is needed to faithfully keep this universe functioning. And if our God is so faithful to watch over the birds and feed them, then he will be faithful to watch over his beloved people. If God is so faithful to care for his creation, he will be faithful to care for his chosen. In the words of our Lord Jesus, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He will faithfully give what He has promised. We are not only to entrust our whole selves to our Creator, and we have good reason to because He's faithful. We are also to do good. And just as Peter was saying, look, entrust yourself to God as Jesus did, as He entrusted Himself to the Father, He's also saying, do good just like Jesus did. Keep the words doing good in your mind while I read Peter's words about Jesus from Acts Chapter 10, verse 38. Peter says this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. You see, Jesus, he he went about doing good. And God was with him. Brothers and sisters, as we go about our suffering and our serving our following in the path and pattern of Christ, our imitation of our Savior, we can be sure that our faithful Creator will be with us and will sustain us. God will be with us. And as we conclude, consider again, what is is at least one goal of the Christian life? It must be to suffer and serve like Christ. In what way will you... Be engaged to serve and do good for Christ tomorrow. In, in what way will you find opportunity to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ and risk suffering and reproach and rebuke? Would you, would you dare to tell a coworker that you sang in church or in a minute, as we hope to do, to take the Lord's Supper? Would you dare to invite them to join you to do those things? Would you risk suffering to tell someone about Christ? Remember not only what awaits your lost friend and neighbor, if they remain outside of Christ, but also remember what awaits you, the hope of glory. And since glory awaits you, you can smile at suffering because it doesn't surprise you. It's exactly what you expected. And you're grateful for the opportunity to reflect and display the character of Christ in it. Since glory awaits you, you can suffer for Christ. Be careful not to suffer for sin, but to suffer for Him. And since glory awaits you, beloved, entrust yourself to your faithful Creator. And do good, just as Christ has done for you. Let's pray for the grace to do these things now. Let's pray together.